This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Imma. I live in Scotland. Hi, I'm Jen and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Ola Banji and I'm from Nigeria. Hello, I'm Liki and I live in Paris. Hey, I'm Rod. I'm from Peru. Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our Carbon Sessions because it's not too late. Hi, I'm Nikki. Hi, I'm Mary Elizabeth. Hello, I'm Kat. We're here today because we all love food and we're all conscious about the environment and the climate. And um, I think this conversation, the idea of this conversation started one, one other thread that we share a message on our forum, where, because I saw all these messages and you guys sharing recipes and talking about food and how we can use our food waste to prepare delicious recipes that I suggest that we should come to Carbon Sessions and have a conversation about it. Thanks for inviting us. I think the origin of the idea was, again, it was Seth. It's always Seth. He <laughs> shared on one of our conversation threads some data that came from Project Drawdown about the extent to which food waste is a contributing factor to uh, carbon emissions. And that kind of catalyzed a conversation about the waste in the food system pre kind of supermarket, pre how it appears to us as consumers. But then also a conversation about the waste that happens once we buy food. And that was really where we then started a very vibrant conversation about recipes and family and parents and how it's really only been in the last 20 or 30 years that we've become quite so profligate and quite so lackadaisical about food waste. So here we are. Yes. Yeah. And definitely there's a lot of waste up the chain and we can certainly put some pressure on some systems, but I've tried to focus on my own home like reducing my own personal waste. And then right before we had this call, so we had this call scheduled and last night I was making dinner and it called for white wine vinegar. And I had, I don't know why the bottle was even back in the pantry, honestly, there was nothing left in it, but the mother was there, you know, the little fermentation thingy. And I had a bottle of wine that was really not white wine that was not very drinkable. So I just decided to, against Julia Child's advice, <laughs> make it my cooking wine because she says you shouldn't ever cook with the wine you wouldn't drink. But I bought it. It was gross. I was like, well, it's cooking wine. So then I put the bottle from the white wine vinegar over in the recycle area and I had my white wine and I, and I was like, wait, I could just add the mother to this bottle of white wine and start all, the whole process over again. And it just made me laugh because I knew we were having this conversation about food waste. I was like, oh, I don't have to buy another bottle of white wine vinegar for maybe another year because I'm making my own. That's 
So funny that you would mention that because, you know, I think a lot of us have started to do different stuff since the pandemic and to live a bit differently. But one of the things that we've done in our house, so my brother, I think my brother and my mother-in-law at some point during one of the lockdowns started to talk to us about kefir, which is um, a fermented milk. Yeah, your face leaky. It's funny. And so I bought some starter packs and actually my husband got really into it. It's not my cup of tea. I don't drink dairy. It's not, I don't eat yogurt. It's not something that appeals to me particularly. But we went through all of these little starter packs and that was that. And I said, should we get some more? And he said, no, we shan't get some more. And this is what he does now, which I think is really interesting and of that vein so it, we now get our milk delivered to the doorstep from a local farm because we just felt at the start of the pandemic that we needed to be supporting local producers. I don't know what it's like in France and in the United States, but if you buy milk from the supermarket, it comes in plastic, whereas to the doorstep, it comes in glass bottles. So all of those good reasons. However, from time to time, if you're not completely on top of your milk consumption, a bottle will start to taste a bit. So anyway, when that happens now, my husband, Tim, literally just takes a dollop of yogurt, live yogurt, and puts it into a saucepan with the pint of milk and lets it do its thing. And then, yeah, several days later, he's got another batch of kefir. So it's like yogurt. It's a fermented milk drink that I think originates from India, actually. Yeah, I believe so. Mm. I don't know much about it because, as I say, it's not my thing. But I do think it is interesting, you know, what you can do with odds and ends. I think you and I had a conversation, Mary Elizabeth, about composting or was it chickens? I can't remember. <laughs> Both are uh, like, yeah, it's coin toss, which one we were talking about. Chickens. I've got worms under my sink, composting. I've got chickens. I've got who eat literally anything. Uh, well, I mean, in theory. The composting thing is a bit mad because here in the UK, and by the way, it varies county by county, but some counties take curbside food waste and take it off to a big, well, we all thought it was an anaerobic digester, hopefully, but it turns out that some of the county councils are also chucking food waste into big incinerators, which is not so great. Anyway, in the pandemic and the aftermath of the first lockdown, we had a lorry driver shortage here in the UK. So a lot of the lorry drivers were here from Europe. They all went home and we had this massive shortage of HGV drivers. And that meant that a lot of the people that had previously worked for the council went and worked for the private sector and earned more money. And we were left with our refuse waste for a while. And I just said to my husband, do you know what? I'm not putting all my food waste into the mainstream bin. Why don't we? We've got the space for it in the garden. Why don't we get composting? So we bought those rotating ones, you know, the ones that fill them up, put the grass waste in as well. And it's been tremendous. It's been absolutely, I mean, it's a bit, you know, it's right down the bottom of the garden, so it doesn't really matter. But yeah, the comp within like two, three months, you've got proper 
kind of garden center grade compost for your fertilizer flower beds and your vegetable patch it's caused me to think about kind of the cycle of life and fermenting things as one for for instance are actually really helpful for you you know this whole circle of life thing i find quite fascinating yeah and we've removed ourselves from that or we've systemically been removed from that um yeah and i think once we see it so i really i mean we used to tease my mother for being so cheap and frugal but i'm grateful for all the things that she has taught me now but i really started to feel passionate about food waste in 2000 when i joined community sponsored agriculture csa and if the listeners don't know you pay for a season. You, you prepay for your produce. And so you're paying a farmer for a season to come pick up whatever vegetables the farmer grows. Well, the CSA I joined was in New Jersey, and it was part of Rutgers University, technically Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. And it was the largest organic student-run community-sponsored agriculture. So we were paying for a share for the summer remember maybe the fall too but the people who worked the farm the farm belonged to the university and the people who worked there were students getting college credit and we went and picked up on the farm every friday and so you would see in the summer these college students just dirty and drenched in sweat getting you your vegetables and it became very very personal like the idea of throwing away a carrot that the sweet person had grown for me, <laughs> like you could literally see the hard work that they put in, it suddenly became extremely personal and throwing it away, it just felt like a personal insult to the person I was going to see a week later. And I think that's where I really took off with, you can't throw it away. Somebody worked so hard. Yeah. Because you feel connected to the, to the source of the food. And the, one of the big problem that we're experiencing now, especially for people who live in cities like me, we are completely disconnected from where food comes from, and especially kids, you know, because they think that fish comes from the freezer. Carrots look like dice, you know. I think the, the cause of that is that they don't, they don't see the process. And there are things that all been done in Paris is like, uh, for example, starting from next year, we, you were talking about uh, composting earlier. And um, it will be compulsory in France everywhere, including in big cities. And I'm completely scared because I have no idea how to do that. So in San Francisco, it's compulsory to compost your food waste. And it's a city pickup, just like your trash. Yes, but... I'm very stressed because I don't know where to put the different things because, you know, the, oh, they put, they give you, they give you that information. Mm. And San Francisco has been quite successful with it. So what they do is they take your scraps, they compost it. They use the compost for a couple of things. One is landscaping around the city. So the compost, when you spread fresh compost on your landscaping, you're helping your landscaping be drought tolerant. So you're reducing water consumption. So imagine citywide reducing water consumption on landscaping. You're increasing carbon capture potential for that soil. Uh, the other thing they're doing with it in San Francisco is putting it on top of the landfill. And so they're controlling pests and controlling methane emissions. So yes, the infrastructure to, to do another 
collection of trash may have been costly and may probably took a while logistically to figure out what that extra trash collection was going to look like. But they've been doing it for several years now, and I haven't seen any financial statements on it, but I'd be surprised if they were losing money on it. Actually, no, I did see one. They are making money off of it because they're reducing other costs in other areas. It's very simple, though. They tell you what to do. And the commercial incinerate, the commercial composters, the commercial composters get so hot that there's a lot more leeway in what you can put in a commercial compost than... I mean, you don't want to be putting actual trash in there, but you have to be a little bit more careful in your home. And I have to be, I had to be more careful in New Jersey where it got much colder than in Texas, but it gets so hot here that I can put a lot of stuff in my compost bin mm. that just churns through it. But I don't know who say that they know someone, some relatives who don't, who don't want to eat food from the day before. Was it? You or? Oh, there are a couple people in the thread. <laughs> there was a thread and full disclosure, my kids were like this when they were really small. So how could they have been influenced by external factors? But there was a time when they were actually not keen to eat leftovers. They're fine now. But I think on that thread, somebody mentioned the cultural idea that eating leftovers somehow denotes less as in less class or less of a standard quality of life or so on. And we, we had started also, hadn't we, to talk about how eating meat assimilates with wealth somehow. And yet my observation from Europe, I spent my student years, I, I studied modern languages at university. And so I spent a lot of time in France and Italy and I'd made a comment about how I have noticed that in France and Italy, as two specific countries, but I'm absolutely sure it's not just those two countries, meat is served almost as a seasoning, as a flavor enhancer, rather than being the bulk of the meal. And, and I also am intrigued that we had an issue in the United Kingdom with BSE, mad cow disease, 20 years ago. So we're very particular in butchery and how meat arrives at our table. But I've observed that in French supermarkets or Italian supermarkets, you see more nose to tail grazing. So when an animal is killed for its meat, the whole animal is used. Whereas in the United Kingdom, it's my perception that because we have way more supermarkets than butcher's shops now. You just pick and choose like, mm, no, I just, I'll have a chicken breast. And I'm like, well, if everyone has chicken breasts, what happens to the rest of the chicken? And that's really, I feel, and I am a meat eater, but I think that's really inhumane. Like that's just so disrespectful to an animal that's probably had a pretty terrible life anyway because it's been bred for meat to begin with i personally buy free range organic but will absolutely if i buy a chicken we'll have a roast chicken four meals you know family of four that'll be the first set of food and then we'll have a risotto or a curry that'll be another four meals and then the final you know that carcass gets boiled up for chicken stock that goes in the freezer 
that then sits as a as an accompaniment or an underscore of soup or whatever. It's just joining up those dots, literally. I know it's almost a cliche now, but it's just thinking that little bit more about what we're doing. But the other side of this whole conversation, which was on my mind, was, you know, I don't think there's many countries that aren't experiencing a cost of living crisis. So what are we doing with all this food waste? Like we should be thinking more sustainably and more holistically about all the food that we're eating and and making that food go further. When my kids were little, we were also foster parents. So we had four kids uh, under the age of five when we started and one income. And really making things last was how I started to get better and better at planning ahead. If I'm going to buy a chicken to roast it, then I want to have, you know, a day later we'll have chicken soup, a day, you know, or soup, you know, chicken tortilla soup. And then a day after that, I'll boil the chicken carcass. And then I'll strain the broth and take all those tiny little pieces of meat and have a chicken salad. And then the chicken stop and on and on it goes. But it did start as, you know, if I'm going to spend that much money, I need to get every little piece out of it. And like now, especially that we have our local, my favorite market has sourdough bread that they sell for years. It's been $6 and 99 cents. And I picked it up yesterday or Sunday and it was $8 and 99 cents. Jumped. There was no in between. It just jumped. And now I'm like, $8.99. So, you know, when the bread gets stale, no, not moldy, but just stale, then it's French toast for breakfast or I'm making a bread pudding. Or, I mean, it's always like really throwing it to the chickens is the last resort. Like, it's going to try to feed us first and then it'll feed the chickens or the dog because the dog doesn't get dog food because. The things that the meat that they can't sell us as humans to eat is what they put in your pet food. Um, so the dog gets homemade food. Like every, everybody's pretty spoiled rotten here, even though we eat leftovers <laughs> and almost no meat. But leftovers can be really, really delicious. They are actually, when you, you say you talked about bread and, um, you know, the French word for uh, French toast is, is pain perdu which is lost bread. Yeah. Wow. I didn't actually know that. That's great. Yeah. And it's delicious. I, I really love French, French toast, pain perdu. One of the problems is that people think it's very complicated. It requires a lot of planning to get food and to prepare proper meals, but it requires planning. Yeah. Right. And I, so I always like to think of my planning time as a way to, like, it's a gift to my future self every week. Oh, that's beautiful. So if I plan on Sunday all week long, I never have to think what's for dinner, who's making dinner. Like, it's done. Because I've gone through so many permutations of planning that now it's a system of, okay, do we have any nights where we're working late? Do we have any nights where we've got guests coming over or we're going somewhere else? I only plan dinner. I Breakfast is only, there's only two things we eat for breakfast, kind of on autopilot for breakfast. And lunch is almost always a salad with whatever leftovers I throw on top of the salad. If there's leftover beans or leftover whatever else is leftover. 
I'm on autopilot for the first two meals of the day and dinner's the only thing I plan. And we figure out like, is anyone coming or going? Is it a late night? Do we need to put something in the slow cooker in the morning because we don't get home until late? And so I never have to think during the week, what's for dinner? And I never have to worry if we have the ingredients for it. It's all there. And it's become such a routine in my household that now it will be whoever really has time to make the dinner will just start making dinner because it's all planned out. So you know everything's there. I have the recipes on the counter in one spot. So it's this gift in advance. I've already thought about it. I take one hour on Saturday or Sunday to think about it, and I never have to think about it again the rest of the week. That's a beautiful way. <laughs> Whereas before, you're thinking about it every day. Yeah, it's saving time and saving money. Really. That's very cool. And I think, you know, that speaks as well to the fact that most of us live such fast-paced and frenetic lives that we actually, aside from food, aside from all of that, we don't have time to stop and think. And if we did have time to stop and think, and we chose to stop and think about food sustainability, I suspect we would all significantly reduce the amount of money that we spend on food because we would be more thoughtful in our buying of and eating food you know i i think there's a lot to be said there and and of course the system at large doesn't want us thinking about food because it's there's more money isn't there involved in a ready meal or a delivery or whatever than there is in you know a head of broccoli and a chicken and some potatoes and, and, and. And I don't know whether it the same applies in the US and France. I'm 99% certain that in the UK, anything that is kind of processed and pre-made carries additional value-added tax on top. So the basic ingredients don't. So there's no onus, is there, on the systems and the governments to change the systems because there's money to be made in it. Whereas if we all kind of just took stock and really thoughtfully reflected on how we're going to go about this, I think we could make a massive difference. Caveated, of course, with I fully appreciate that there are thousands of people that are absolutely on the breadline and I can't even imagine, so I'm not even going to try. But I genuinely think that when we come together and share stories about what we do, we inspire one another to try different things and to behave slightly differently, even if all that difference is just a thoughtful reflection on that conversation that I had. Oh, that's made me think perhaps I won't do what I normally do. You're right. It is a privilege to be able to sit and plan what you would like to eat for the week and who's going to prepare it. And that's certainly a privilege. And I do think that systemically, it's the tyranny of convenience, right? It's more convenient to say, oh, I'll just stop and pick something up. But I also think systemically that we've been disempowered to make those choices. And so we were foster parents and we worked closely with a couple of biological moms. And like one mom, I was really helping her figure out, like, this is how you feed your kids. This is what to look for at the grocery store. And she was in a very different position than I was. Not that I'm wealthy, but she was in a different position. And so I had to do the grocery shopping from a different point of view with her and the meal planning was from her point of view and not mine. But the knowledge, just the knowledge of how to shop 
and cook was has been, I believe, purposely taken away from consumers. Yeah. So that we do go up to that convenient choice. Um, so there were things, I mean, really, she had no clue. She really could do extremely little. I mean, beyond boil water, it was very little. Those are she could do. Are skills that were taught in schools, how to prepare food, how to shop, the nutrition and planning. That was part of the school curriculum for my mother-in-law. She's, um, she used to study that, but mm -hmm. not anymore. And I think those are very, very useful skills to know what you put in your mouth. And I think, you know, we're talking about systems, and I think the large food processing companies in supermarkets are taking advantage of, of us of being non-educated on how we put food in our mouth. And that needs to be changed. 100%. 100% agree with that. And I think, you know, you do start to wonder, as these systems around us are now starting to break down, and I don't mean the environmental mm. systems so much as the man-made systems mm. that were designed by men and women to construct our lives, it does make you wonder, you know, we used to get taught home economics in the United Kingdom until probably the 1990s, so that every child leaving school had a real baseline of like, you know, how to boil an egg or how to cook an omelette or something, how to make cheese on toast. And I'm not convinced, it, A, it doesn't exist as an option because the whole education curriculum has skewed towards science, technology, engineering, and math, but it does make you wonder. It's, it's as if the most essential parts of how we live have been monetized to the nth degree, and there is no incentive from the people that benefit the most there's no incentive to try and bring us back down. But I always think about, and I love fiction, I love reading, and I've read a lot of um, fiction about life in Europe in the Second World War. And I just think, gosh, when stuff gets really, really difficult, human beings are infinitely creative and resilient and resourceful. And we're not so long ago from that period. So that kind of inspires me. Okay, but what's frustrating is cooking is science and technology and mathematics. <laughs> so like you, I mean, there's, there is a science to it. Once you know the ratios, I mean, my, he's, it drives my husband crazy. I'll make something even, so I don't eat meat, but even if I make a meat dish, I'll cook it for them and never taste it, never anything. And I'll be like, okay, it's done. It's like, well, let me get the, let me check the thermometer. It's done. Take it out. It's going to burn. Like it's done. And it's like, how do you know it's done? Like you just know, like, <laughs> it's like you look at it, you see that this, like, you know, you start to see like, well, it's, he's like, it looks like it's not done yet. I'm like, right. But we take it out and we keep it covered for 15 minutes and it's done. Otherwise it's going to be dry. And so there's a science to it, to seeing how the food changes as it's cooked. Um, if you're mixing up something on the stovetop, there's a science to getting the, the right proportions of liquid to not liquid. If you're baking, that's really science, right? Like the leaveners and the fat. And that's uh, Nazmin, oh, what's her name? Blanking on her name. The fat, salt, acid, heat. And it's love as well. Cooking is love because you're cooking for other people. It's an expression of love. Oh, I love that. Yes, that's absolutely, that is absolutely it, isn't it? You are nourishing other people. Cooking 
is science and technology and mathematics and it's agricultural and it's political and it's climate-based. <laughs> you can't get anything more connected to humans, to each other and to our environment than food. Yeah. This is something that my mother, I mean, when she loves people, you can tell from the food she cooks. <laughs> when she cooks for someone she doesn't love, you can tell as well. And um, my mother had a, has, she still has a very special relationship with foods because um, my mother grew up in China during the Cultural Revolution. And at one stage, there was, I don't know if you've ever heard about this big famine. Famine, yeah. Famine, this big famine where there's no food. There are historians that say that it's, um, it was um, a tactic by the communists at this time to eliminate part of the population in China because it's, this famine led to the, um, I think, a couple of million of people dying. And my mother was a teenager at this time, and she was telling me how hard it was. And so it's how I've been brought up. My mother telling me how hard it is not to have food. So that's something I, we didn't grow up poor, but the value of food and like, um, it's something that's very, very important. It's something that we need to value. It's really ingrained in my education. So I don't want to waste like even like a small, a small piece of food. I don't want to, for that to happen because I know how hard it was for my mother when she didn't have access to this. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we yeah. detach ourselves from near history, don't we? You know? Yes. I mean, obviously, what happened in China is a million miles away from what happened in Europe. But arguably, with the numbers you're talking about, that's worse, like way worse. We don't involve ourselves in our recent social history, do we? Still today, there are people that have nothing to eat. This is this is really sad and... Right, 100%. And it's going on right now in other parts of the world. It's insane. And, and probably in your backyard, but <laughs> for sure in your backyard. So when I was younger, I used to eat meat. And I went to someone's house and they were, it was in the country in Alabama. And they lived a life that you would probably imagine someone in the American South living in the country. And she made us, the hostess made us breakfast. And it was delicious. <laughs> it was eggs, gravy, and the gravy you use, like the leftover grease from the bacon. And you know, the bacon had been living the day before, you know, the month before in the backyard. And I said something about how the eggs were good, and scrambled eggs. And she said, oh, good. Um, yeah, I put the pig brains in there. I was like, oh, they're delicious. Thank you. And I know since this is a podcast, you can't see my face, but I was very disappointed to be eating pig brains. Yeah, well, I, um, I'm not surprised because there's a French expression which says, tout est bon dans le cochon, which means all is good in pig. The point is you use it, right? She's like, <laughs> well, I mean, we killed that pig. We're going to use it. Like, and, and so you don't have to... You don't have to use as many eggs to feed somebody if you kind of spread it out with pig brains as well. I mean, it had the same texture as egg whites, so you couldn't really tell anything. So I will tell a story, and I don't know, again, whether this is like universal, but my father-in-law worked in the dairy industry for a long time, and he has always said, we have a brand of ice cream here in the United Kingdom called Walls, and it was very, very popular in the 1970s. But walls also produce sausages. And so it was an open thing in the food industry that 
the um, ice cream was made out of the excess pig fat. Well, there's an expression in the South that you use everything but the squeal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Would you think about that? If walls make sausages and ice cream, I suppose it makes sense. It doesn't happen now. I don't think, but I don't know. It's led me, I will only buy a certain yeah. caliber of ice cream, lest it be pig fat inside. But, you know, again, needs must in the in the post-war period, needs must, right? Absolutely. There was a book published in 1942 by Mary Frances Kennedy, and it was called How to Cook a Wolf. And I don't think she was actually talking about cooking wolf. She may have been. But it was really, you know, how in lean times, how you use everything and and how you not waste. Now she was one she's considered one of America's first food authors, food writers. And even though in 1942, America was not in World War II, um, she yeah, we certainly knew what was happening in Europe. So she probably saw lean times coming. How to cook a wolf. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a, just generational knowledge. And so I said in the thread, so I have a lot of family recipes and they have notes from family members on the cards, right? So when I copied the family recipes, I copied the notes from my grandmother or from my great aunt Mary and, and kept those notes the same. And some of the recipes now, it <laughs> It'd be hard for us to follow unless you're in my family because they call for things like a number two can of pumpkin. Well, they don't make number two cans anymore. And the 24 ounce can isn't quite a number two. So you just have to, it's this generational knowledge. You just have to know what a number two can was. We have our family recipe bread was made by great grandmother in Bohemia, which is now part of the Czech Republic. Oh, but that. it was made every Sunday and she took it over to her Beau's house over the other side of the mountain. And we only have that recipe because my grandfather, who had married into the family, wrote it down. But it calls for three mixing spoons of lard. You just got to know which spoon she was using. <laughs> so <laughs> I that we do have the spoon she used and the bowl she used. Um, but these recipes have been passed down. And so I have them written down exactly as they have been passed down to me. But I know what size spoon to use. There's no measurement. It's just three mixing spoons <laughs> that generates. So when I cook, especially when I cook family recipes, I feel very connected to family. Like I can imagine my great grandmother, whom I never knew, walking across a mountain outside of Prague, where I have been, to take this loaf of bread to her future yeah. husband's family, her future in-laws. And the soap recipe, the soap recipe is funny too, because... There's all these notes on what type of fat you should use for the soap and which types of fat are better than others for making soap. But I made it one time and it didn't turn out right. I called my mom. She goes, yeah, it calls for a can of lye. And I bet the can is not the same size anymore. So it means just all these little things that connect you to your past. And to me, that connection to past is also a, a, a privilege. Like, there are so many people in the world who cannot connect to their past from trauma of some sort or of another. And so to me, that's also a real privilege. Like I know my great-grandmother. I know her name. I know where she lived. And to be able to have that recipe that she had, it's just really special to me. Well, it seems to me that, you know, the other day, I think that you were brainstorming about ideas on 
recipe books or like climate recipes, but I think that's something we could, I mean, that's something that needs to be done with, because there's, on one hand, you have all this knowledge and all these people having all this knowledge that have been passed down from one generation to another. And, you know, maybe there's something that we could do uh, to help that survive. I mean, it is funny, you know, people have asked me, like, my pie recipe is, it's often asked for, seldom given out. But, well, I say pie, pie crust, that's where it's at. But someone asked me once, like, oh my gosh, what's in your apple pie? It's so good. Can I have the recipe? I'm like, well, it's never the same. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, it depends on what apples are at the store. It, like, maybe there's pears in there too. Like, it just kind of depends on what's in the refrigerator. And maybe I have some spices on hand, or maybe I don't. Like, it's just kind of, it's not really ever the same recipe. <laughs> so that kind of, like, if I have pears that need to be used up, they go in with apples and it's apple pie, even though there's pears in there. Um, so yeah, it's kind of that knowledge of being able to look in the fridge and go, yeah, that will work. Uh, that's been lost. And I think people are ready for it to return. I think because it does touch on so many points, um, the budget, the time, the sustainability factor, you know, you, the people who are concerned about the budget may not initially care about the climate, but with food, you've got this overlap. And health. Oh, yeah, and health, for sure. And he health, it's so important. Yeah. And social connection as well. Yeah. You know, back to the point about cooking for people and coming together in community to eat together and spend some time together and chat about our day or whatever. You know, there's a lot in this for sure. I think we... We'll have to go away and get our thinking caps on because I can see something new in the in the wings for creation there for sure. <laughs> There's um, a celebrity chef. I don't know too many, but I heard of this one, Craig, Craig Claiborne, who said, cooking is at once child's play and adult joy. And cooking done with care is an act of love. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. I know, that's sweet. But I like that, like, it's child's play. Like, sure, have fun with it. But it's also, you know, as an adult, joyful experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, can I, I'd like to share a few, like, tangible, practical things on, like, just using up your scraps at home. Mm -hmm. so I, I um, Just really easy, like, super easy ways. So uh, I did mention in the thread, Kat, I think this was, as we were figuring out this podcast together, I mentioned that my grandmother taught me how to make vegetable stock and you just save all of your veggie scraps in a, she just put them in a Ziploc bag, plastic bag in the freezer. And veggie stock is made from the hard stock of maybe uh, a green that's on a hard stock. You cut that off, you put it, it's a veggie scrap. Onion skins that are generally inedible garlic peels, the eyes that you gouge out of potatoes, the hard tops and bottoms of carrots, like all those little inedible pieces of, or pieces that you don't want to eat of a vegetable. Put them in a plastic bag. Let the plastic bag get nice and full, and then you just boil the heck out of it with whatever vegetables you want. I mean, with whatever spices you want. And you've got this nice, rich vegetable broth. So my grandmother used to keep the plastic bag in the freezer, 
And before, <laughs> when she was towards the end of her life and she knew she was close to death, she told my sister, now you got to throw that plastic bag out of my freezer. I am not going to have people thinking I was eating garbage. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been so embarrassing to her. Now, it's fine for people to think that she makes a homemade vegetable broth that's beautiful. But she's not going to have people misunderstanding it when she's dead. <laughs> That is so funny. I had to um, when my, my when my dad died, the, and my mum and dad had had a big chest freezer in the garage, and um, of course, that's not the sort of thing that my you know that's not the sort of thing that anybody would have thought. Oh God, I better get that cleared out before I <laughs> pop off my mortal coil. And I swear, I had to empty that freezer, and there were bits and bobs in there left over from before, like from a decade before, because, and I know that because my mum died six and a half years before my dad and was sick two years before that. And my dad would not have put that stuff in the freezer <laughs> for some time in the future. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, so we, we learn a lot. I've taught my kids how to use up like what would normally be considered food wastes. Like if you buy, uh, if you don't have an herb card and you buy fresh herbs, but you need like a tablespoon for a recipe and then you have all those leftover fresh herbs, we just chop that up. And well, maybe it goes in the bank to make vegetable stock, but we can also um, chop that up and whip it up with butter or the vegan equivalent of butter and that will freeze. So I can make a little ice cube tray full of herbed butter to have throughout the year. I've made, like, if there's just a little bit of leftover wine, sometimes I just freeze the wine in ice cubes, and, and then I can drop it in the pan, saute vegetables with some wine, or make it in with the, add it to a soup. So I've tried to teach the kids, like, what you would normally throw away, there might be a use for. It doesn't always have to go in the bin. And even if it's a tiny little scrap, like the potato peelings, we, we used to save those all the time to make... Um, potato bread so just different little things but that if nobody tells you it's obvious when someone tells you but if no one tells you then you just go to the store and you buy more and you throw it away and you go to the store and you buy more and you throw it away yeah i've never thought about potato pills that's like the eyes of potatoes no one has ever told me when there's a lemon and we only we don't use the whole lemon then i go around to all the sinks in the house and i just scrub it with the lemon cleans the sinks it's just little stuff that someone just has to tell you <gasps> i think we need to <laughs> well i think we need to start a book project or something that's <laughs> I, I did the book you don't have to start oh, one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in there <laughs> but no we should do something more focused on recipes for sure i think that would be very cool mm -hmm. <laughs> okay how do we end this conversation that's the difficult part <laughs> Well, I am getting hungry, so it is time for me to go eat. Yeah, and me. Must be your dinner time as well. Yeah, Nikki. well, it's 8.30 and uh, I haven't made dinner and I have not I have no idea what to cook. <gasps> you have no plan. Oh, okay, well, what do you have? I have no plan. Okay, let, let's solve this problem. <laughs> right, okay. I have broccolis, okay. aubergine. Mm -hmm. I have radish. Beetroots, some eggs, um, all tomatoes. I've already got it. Okay. 
I got it. Oh, tomatoes. Old okay. tomatoes. Broccoli, okay. even better. Broccoli, aubergine, cook some up on some hot, some high heat on stovetop mm-hmm. with whatever fat you want. Okay. Add your tomatoes so that tomatoes condense and make it kind of a stew. Mm-hmm. Hard boil an, or so, hard or soft boil an egg and and then serve that over some toast. I have no bread. Serve it in a bowl. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I think we have some potatoes, so we're going to. <laughs> oh, potatoes! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. Thank you. So if you're in a hurry, you can do you can microwave the potatoes. But the broccoli and aubergine, I would cook together at the same time. Salt it so that the bitterness comes out of the aubergine, yeah. which is eggplant for people in the United States. And yeah, salt it as you're cooking it. And then I would add a tiny bit of like a cayenne pepper because the aubergine, the bitterness of the aubergine and the heat of the cayenne pepper can kind of cancel each other out. And then when you add the soft-boiled egg on top, that spice goes really well with the egg. I'm already burnt. Hungry, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be on we'll be on um, on your case every single night after we now, Mary. Like, right. I've got tonight in my fridge, I've got this. What should we do? <laughs> you know what? I've often thought that that should be a reality TV show. So I'm sure you all, I'm sure no matter where you are in the world, and we've got, you mm. know, the United States, France, UK, and Niger represented here. You've all seen cooking shows, these reality cooking shows with the fancy ingredients and the beautiful presentation. I have always thought it should be a reality show. Take some chef from a five star Michelin rated restaurant. Bring him to your whole regular <laughs> <Yeah>. house with kids, <laughs> and he has to cook dinner before the kids have a meltdown, and the kids have to eat it. Because hmm. that is the real cooking challenge. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. That is a, I would love to see that. I would do. I think it'd be a very highly rated show. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be called something like, so you think you can make my kids eat your food? <laughs> There's so many ideas here. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, we're going to go let Linky enjoy her broccoli and aubergine and eggs over potato. Yeah, thank you very much for this conversation. <laughs> thank you for suggesting that. Thank you for calling us over, Linky. You've been listening to Carbon Sessions a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again, as together we can change the world.